simple. You teach, we listen, let your spirit lead. Help us just to love the people that are here this morning. And Lord, we just want to grow and go deeper in you. In your name, amen. Uh, Acts 13 is kind of a long chapter with a lot of different things in it. We did the beginning part of Acts 13 last week, and I highly encourage if you weren't here, get a copy of the CD, listen to it online, because what it is is it talks about your calling in life. If you take a look there at verse 2, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. We all have a calling, we all have a gift, we all have a ministry, and a lot of us spend a lot of time trying to figure out what that is. So that teaching last week was how do we know what we're gifted in, called in, ministering in, and we talked about that passage, so I encourage you to get a copy of that. With that being said, as we just read, Paul and Barnabas are now called on their missionary journey. If you have maps in the back of your Bible, you're going to see a map that probably says something that Paul's missionary journeys. We're on missionary journey number one. This is a big deal. This is the first time you see the church really reaching out. I mean, they had done stuff in Jerusalem. You've seen them move towards Antioch. Now they're moving out across the world, taking the gospel message. So this is Paul's first missionary journey, and he's going to be taking Barnabas with him and John, who's also known as Mark, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. So with that being said, let's see what happens. Verse 4, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit... They went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they had arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. Once again, those names, verse 6, now when they had gone through the island of Paphos, all those are going to be on the maps, they're in the back. So now they have gone out, they're going to these places. What happens? They found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elamas, the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. A lot of information in there, and we'll just kind of break this down. First off, let's remind ourselves in verse 5 who John is. Well, we can piece together from the Bible. It looks like John, known as John Mark, was saved via Peter, and he went on Paul's first missionary journey. Now, this guy's going to become really important here in about two chapters, so keep that in the back of your mind. We were first introduced to him back in chapter 12, and we also believe this is the one that probably wrote the book of Mark as well, too. But keep in the back of mind, in two chapters, he becomes very, very important. We have other couple different uh, characters mentioned to us as well. We have this guy that's called the proconsul. Some of your translations just simply say governor, Sergius Paulus. And then we also have Bar-Jesus, also known as Elamas. Bar-Jesus literally means son of Jesus. Now, I don't think he's trying to say that he was the son of Jesus, our Messiah, because not enough years had really passed for somebody to name their kids son of Jesus. It didn't work that way. Jesus was actually a pretty common name back during New Testament times. The name Jesus means God is or Yahweh is salvation, and it's equivalent to the Old Testament name of Joshua. So there's a lot of people that named their child Jesus. That was not necessarily an uncommon name. So bar Jesus would not be that strange. Now, the other word there, Elamas, his name, that means wise one wise one. So we have Bar-Jesus and Elamas, and we also have Sergius Pallas here. And what's happening is this. Everybody wants Sergius Pallas. God wants him to be saved. The enemy wants him not to be saved. 
So what happens? The Lord sends Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark to lead this man to salvation. And the enemy puts in bar Jesus there to keep him from it. And do you realize that 2,000 years later, nothing has changed? You have a loved one that you would love to see saved. Guess what? You are praying for people to be sent. You're going and representing Jesus Christ to them. And the enemy is saying, I'm going to send people. That's going to distract this person. In fact, not just distract them. Take a look what it says right here in verse 8. Withstood them, resist them, put actual effort up to it. I don't know how many times out here over the years I've been talking to somebody. And maybe we're talking about salvation. We're talking about life issues, um, marriage relationships. I don't know what it is. And I'm counseling them saying, hey, keep, keep fighting here you know, to work at your marriage, to work for salvation, to understand what it means to really be saved. And we have this great conversation. And I follow up with them a few days later. And what happened? Well, I was talking to Bill at work. Oh, really? Yeah, what did Bill say? Well, Bill said... And it's like, ah, and if you're here today and your name is Bill, I'm not talking about you specifically. I try to pick a name that's fairly generic there. Um, well, well, Bill thinks this. Well, I don't care what Bill thinks. I don't think Bill's caring about your soul and what the Bible says, etc. And I just see so often that there's these individuals at home or at work. I'll, I'll talk to a, a young man, and next thing you know, he's really serious about the Lord. Then he goes home. Well, I was talking to my dad. I was talking to my mom. I was talking to my grandma. And they think... And you just see this constant battle going back and forth between individuals and things. And I just want to let you know, this is how the enemy works. You're praying for people to go tell your loved one about Christ, and the enemy is sending people to distract that, to oppose that, to resist that. That's exactly what happens. And this is nothing new. This has been going on for literally thousands of years. Anytime the Lord is moving, the enemy is pushing back. We've said this out here many times. If you want to go deeper in your walk in relationship with Christ, there's going to be opposition. There's just going to be. You know, we're doing a baptism today after church, and one of the things that we're going to say for these people getting baptized is this. You are making a public proclamation of your faith in Christ. You are publicly telling the world that you are born again and saved in Jesus, and you want to identify with Christ through baptism. The enemy is going to push back. And anybody here that's been baptized, you know I say that at every baptism service, and you know that it's true. The enemy then pushes back. We need to be prayed up against this. This happened to even Jesus back in the Gospels. In just the book of Mark, Mark chapter 4, it's the famous story of where Jesus calmed the sea. You remember, he's asleep at the boat. They think the boat's going to sink. They wake Jesus up. What are you doing? Why are you sleeping? Jesus stands up and says, peace, be still. And then all of a sudden, miraculously, the storm stops. As soon as they get off the boat, what's waiting for them in Mark chapter 5? A demon-possessed man. Because that's what the enemy does. You have a moment of success. You have a moment of spiritual growth. The enemy hits back. A few chapters later, Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus goes up on the mountain. One of the few times that you actually see Jesus in his glory as God. Moses appears. Elijah appears. Peter, James, and John are there. It's this wonderful moment. The Bible says they come down from the mountain. What's waiting for them? A man with his demon-possessed child. This is what happens. When you have a mountaintop experience, the enemy will always wait down at the bottom of the mountain for you. He won't get you at the top of the mountain. He knows it's too strong. He's just going to wait. When you are moving forward with the Lord, and next thing you know, you have a few days in the row of just good devotions. Hey, the marriage is going better. The kids are going better. Our house is finally taking a turn. Work's going better. Opposition will come. Now, this is not trying to defeat you, to discourage you. This is trying to tell you, be prepared for this. I see the church sending out Paul and Barnabas, and they're excited. We're going to go out. We're sending out missionaries. Amen. They're on their boat trip. It's going great. They stop, and then they run into Bar Jesus. 
That's what's going to happen. Be prepared. Be ready for that. Be prayed up because you know this is how the enemy works. So they run into this man who is now going against them, battling against them. They both want this guy, Sergius Paulus, to be saved. Well, excuse me, one wants him to be saved and the other one doesn't. So what's going to happen? Verse 9, Saul, who's also called Paul. Please note the name change right there. Saul means desired. Paul means little. Okay? Saul means desired. Paul means little. So when he was Saul, he was desired by God. God wanted him. And now that he's Paul, he's little. He's been humbled. He's just a piece that God uses rather than this prideful man. So that's what the Lord does. If you take a look in the Bible, Jesus is constantly changing people's names. <laughs> he's the guy that he'd meet you for the first time and give you a nickname. And that's okay. So because when you get a name change... It shows. It shows that ownership. You know, one of the fun things we get to do as parents is this life that comes into the world, we get to pick a name for it. Like it or not, they will have this name for the rest of their lives. So we get to have that. In fact, the book of Revelation says when we get to heaven, guess what? We get a new name. We get a new name because we are the Lord's. We are chosen by him. We are born again in him. So now Saul, who is known as Paul, look what he says, verse 10. O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? That's a pretty powerful verse to use in evangelism. I'm just going to give that to you. If you're going to use that verse, please make sure back up to verse 9, you're filled with the Holy Spirit before you say that. You have to be filled and ready. If you're going to make a statement like that to somebody, make sure it is of the Lord and not of the flesh. We have a tendency as human beings in the midst of emotion to say things we don't think through, we don't mean, and those words stay, they register, and they sting. If you're going to make that powerful of a statement in verse 10, verse 9, you need to make sure you are filled with the Holy Spirit, and this is where the Lord is leading. Look how Paul describes Bar-Jesus there in verse 10. Full of deceit, full of fraud, son of the devil, enemy of righteousness. Pretty powerful. Hey, stay with me here in Acts 13, but go to John chapter 8, please. John 8. John 8. Son of the devil. I'm going to build on that one a little bit. Full of fraud and deceit, enemy of righteousness. What you have going on here in John chapter 8 is Jesus having a discussion slash debate with a group of Jews. And this is how it starts in verse 37. Jesus talking to them. says, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. So he goes, I know you're Jews. But verse 38, I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. Please stop right there. Please note in this conversation, Jesus from the beginning is separating my father from your father. That's an important point. Their response to that, verse 39, they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. We're, we're descendant of Abraham. That's our father. Verse 39, Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you do the works of Abraham. If you truly were Jews, if you truly were Abraham's descendants, you would want to do in what Abraham did by serving God. Verse 40, But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. Once again, he brings it back up again. You're doing the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, We were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Now, that's a really interesting verse in verse 41. I've heard many pastors teach on this. And they're saying, do you think that's a slight towards Jesus? Yeah, we heard your little virgin birth story, Jesus. 
Yeah, we heard your little background of how you suppose they came about. We have one father. We're not born of fornication. Verse 42, Jesus said to him, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceed forth and come from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you're not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil. And the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. Jesus is saying right from the beginning, there's my father, the heavenly father, and your father, the devil. Now, what's point is this? We have this little statement we like to say as human beings that everybody is a child of God. That statement is biblically not true. You're a child of God when you've been born again and saved through Jesus Christ then God becomes your heavenly father. Until that time, you're a a child of the enemy. Excuse me, a child of the enemy, yes. And so we have to understand this. This is why salvation is so important in being born again. I mean, think of the term born again. This idea, this process of completely being born a second time. It shows a newness in life. It shows a brand new creation. Why? Because I was of my father, the devil. Look at the description that Paul gave about Bar-Jesus, full of fraud and deceit. Look at the description of Satan, verse 44. Murder from the beginning does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. What that means is this. When I'm trying to prepare somebody for the gospel and share Jesus with them, the enemy is also sending somebody to distract That enemy is not my enemy, but he's being used by the enemy. And we need to understand that. You have to look at the power that's going behind that person. That person is being used by the enemy to withstand the gospel in that person's life. We need to pray against that. They are of their father, the devil. Now, I'm not trying to say that to be mean or attack. That's a biblical concept. And we need to understand if that's what's happening, we need to also pray for that person, for them to come to know Christ. What does that look like? Go back to Acts with me real quick. If you have somebody that is withstanding, is resisting the gospel, and they're becoming an issue in your life, i got a prayer I want you to pray for them. If you have somebody that you're trying to share the gospel with, and there's somebody else in their life that's coming in and causing issues, go to Acts 26 with me. Here's the prayer that Jesus gave to Paul. What a great prayer this is to use for those people. Once again, they are not the enemy. There is one enemy, and that's Satan. But they are being used by the enemy. So what do we pray this? We pray Acts 26, verse 18. To open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. What a great prayer. So that those people that that, that are resisting and struggling, and it's a battle, I I don't hate them. I, I don't try to fight them. But Lord, I pray their eyes are opened. I pray they turn from darkness to light. I pray they turn from the power of Satan to the power of God. That's the goal. That's what we want. Because there's a blindness going on with them. And if you take a look back in Acts 13, when Paul talked to Bar-Jesus, it says in verse 11, The hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. This man was spiritually blind and now physically blind. Please note it was only for a time. This isn't some uh, curse thing that Paul put on him, but it was for a time to get his attention. And the Lord used it because verse 12, next thing you know, the governor gets saved. Amen. So the first part of this chapter is very simple. When you try to move forward in your walk with the Lord, there's going to be opposition. Be prepared for that. Be ready for that. Number two, what do you do with that opposition? 
I tell you, I would pray that Acts 26, 8. Pray that their eyes are open. Pray that they turn from the power of the enemy to the power of God because the enemy is using them. You will all have a bar Jesus in your life. Somebody that's trying to resist, withstand, cause issues. Recognize that. Realize that. Realize the power behind that. Pray for them. Don't make it personal, folks. Don't make it personal. We are used by the Lord in the way that we should be used, and we just want to represent Jesus and always say and do. So, here we are now. Now they move on to another place, verse 13. Now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John departed from them, returned to Jerusalem. Please note verse 13. I told you before, that's going to become an issue. Two chapters, this is going to come back up again about how John Mark left right here. And we'll talk about that in a few weeks. Verse 14. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch and Pisidia. They went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. So this is what they would do. This is what Jesus did back in the Gospels. This is what Peter and John did. This is what Paul did. They would go to a town and they would look for the synagogue. Now, you have to understand a little bit here. You have one temple in Jerusalem, and this is where all the sacrifices happen. This is where the high priest is. You see that a lot in the Gospels, because Jesus spent a lot of time in Jerusalem. But in these other towns, the farther you got out from Jerusalem, you'd have something called a synagogue. And at the synagogue, you would meet, and you would have a reading of, it says, a law, a reading of the Old Testament prophets. And they would especially meet on Fridays. And what would happen, it was customary at this time that you would show up, if you were a traveling Jew, you would find the synagogue on Friday, you would show up, listen to the readings, and they would know, they would look around and say, okay, who's from out of town? All right, you're from out of town. Hey, does anybody else have anything they want to share? Now, that's a horrible question to ask Paul. <laughs> do you have anything that you would like to share? Paul says, you bet I do. Verse 16, then Paul stood up, motioning with his hands, and said... Now, Paul gives this message, and I want to just explain to you what the message is as you go through this. The message is pretty straightforward. The first point is this. God has called Israel, watched out for Israel, led Israel with leadership. Then he's going to bring in who Jesus is. So let's see the first part of this, verse 17, excuse me, verse 16. Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. Please note in verse 17, Israel, you were chosen. God wanted you. And when you were enslaved in Egypt, God brought you out of it. So right from the beginning, he's saying you are a chosen people and God has always watched out for you. Verse 18, now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. So for 40 years, he took care of you. Now that phrase, put up... That's an interesting phrase. And it can actually be translated two different ways. One way is you put up with them. Parents, you know what I'm talking about. You put up with your kids sometimes. You love them. You do care for them. But sometimes they annoy you. And so you put up with them. The other way that can be translated is you cared for them. Now, I lean a little bit more towards that one. Because in Deuteronomy 1, there's this great passage where it describes Israel as a son that God carried through the wilderness taking care of him. So I'm going to go with the good one here and say that the Lord did put up with us, put up with Israel, but he also cared for us. So he took care of them. Verse 19, and when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. He gave you land. Verse 20, after that he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. He gave you leadership. Verse 21, and afterwards they asked for a king, so God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. 
So he says he's given you kings, he's given you leadership, and he now brings in David. He name drops David because David's the guy. Beloved David. And he says, guess what God told David? Verse 23, I'm going to give you a son, a man after my own heart who would do my will. So he says this great setup to say God has always watched out for you. He chose you. He took care of you. He gave you leadership. He gave you people to watch out for you. And now ultimately, verse 23, from this man's seed, according to the promise God raised up for Israel, Savior, Jesus. See, Israel, he has always taken care of you. He has always watched out for you. And now, ultimately, he has given you Jesus, which is right in line with his nature. Verse 24, after John had first preached before his coming, this is John the Baptist, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I'm not he. But behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to lose. And now he brings up John. Remember, John was beloved. John the Baptist proclaimed that Jesus himself was also the Messiah. Now, but before we move on with this message, we have to stop because there's this little verse in there in verse 25. As John was finishing his course. That's really important. John was finishing his course. Can you go with me real quick to 2 Timothy, please? 2 Timothy 4. The idea of a course, like a race course that you need to run the track that you need to follow. There's a course that you follow. God has a course for your life. He has a plan for your life. Now, what's that track look like, that course look like? I can't answer that for you. That's between you and the Lord. I've shared this example with you before. Back when I was in high school, I used to run cross-country. And as we would run cross-country, some of these uh, meets had the strangest courses strangest ones. And so they would stop at the beginning and they would say, okay, listen, you're going to go run around the big reservoir once, then the little reservoir once, and then you're going to go run around the big reservoir a second time. And then there's another one where you had to run around the reservoir two times and take this path through through here, and they would explain the course to you so you didn't get lost. I never once paid attention because I was always at the back and there's enough people in front of me. I never had to worry once about how the course was. Never once. And I realized that some people go through life not worrying about their course. I'm just going to hang out in the back, and whatever happens, happens. The Bible wants you to know your plan, to know your course, to know your calling. And I've had people come up to me and say, I've gotten through 40, 50, 60 years of life not worrying about anything like that, and I don't even know why I'm going to start now. Because the Lord told you to. He says, I have a plan for you. I have a course. John the Baptist's course ended with him being beheaded. That was his course. And he died in his early 30s. I don't know what the course that God has for you, but Paul talks about this. In 2 Timothy, the last book that he wrote, he talks about the race that he must run. Take a look at verse 6. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time on my departure is at hand. He says, I know I'm getting ready to die. Church tradition and history teaches us that Paul wrote this from his jail cell, getting ready for his death, his execution. And he says, my drink offering and the time of my departure is at hand. What's a drink offering? A drink offering in the Bible is this. They would take something and fill it with a liquid. And then you would take that and you would pour the liquid out. And it was supposed to be a picture of you giving everything, everything over to the Lord. Completely emptying yourself to God. So, you know, I usually have a cup of water up here when I'm teaching. If I would take this and offer this as a drink offering, I pour it on the carpet here, I can't recollect that. It's gone. That's the point of the drink offering is once you poured it out, it's gone. You've given your life over to the Lord. It's gone. Now, here's the problem with you and I when it comes to drink offerings with our life. We like to give the Lord like one drop at a time. 
Instead of just taking our life and just pouring it out to the Lord, it's like, okay, Lord, I'll give you a little bit here. Okay, I'll give you a little bit more. And we give him these little tiny drops every now and then. And when we think we're making sacrifices, and the Lord says, I want the whole cup, just dump it. So when Paul says in verse 6, I've been poured out as a drink offering, he says, I've given everything to the Lord. Verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I finished the race, this course. Here's the facts. You're going to die. I'm going to die. Now, what are you going to do with that information? Some of you may be saying, nope, I'm just going to wait for the rapture and I don't have to taste death. Well, amen, I hope for that as well, too. But the reality is, for most of us, we're going to go through physical death. Our race will come to an end. The course will come to an end. What are we going to do with this information? So I'm trying to tell you right here, right now, two things. Number one, if you're here this morning and you are not saved, you do not have the assurance of where you're going, you are going to taste death. And you're going to stand before God. That is a fact. The Bible says this. Now, for me as a believer, I stand before God, and the Bible says, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord, and I get to go to heaven. Not because of what I did, but because I trust in what Jesus Christ did. He paid a price that I couldn't pay. I sinned. I deserve hell. Jesus said, I will take care of your sin. I will pay that debt for you, James. And I believe that. And believe does not just mean I acknowledge it as a fact. It means I have put my faith and trust in that. Now, Everybody else who dies that's not saved, they will stand before God too. The Bible says there's a great right throne judgment. And God, who is fair and just, will bring out the books. And the books have all of our works recorded in it, the Bible says. And he will then say, give me your case. Why should you enter into heaven? Because I have your list right here of works that you have done. And this is not based on if I do more good than bad, I'm in. Now, it's not how many little old ladies I help cross the street. Works keep us out because we cannot earn salvation. So the point is this. When your race comes to an end, when your course comes to an end, you're going to come to the finish line of life. And God's going to be there in one way or the other. Either letting you into heaven through Christ or sending you into hell because you've totally rejected what Jesus did. Take a look at verse 8. Finally, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Righteousness is just a fancy word that means to be made right. Which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. Not to me only, but also to all those loved as appearing. That's what I want you to have. So that's the most important thing right here is making sure you understand that. Point number two, for you that are here this morning and you are born again and saved. How are you doing on your race? How's it going? I've noticed this with a lot of Christians. They start out really good on their race. And they realize the race is a lot longer and harder than what they thought it was going to be. And they decide to make their own path. And next thing they know, they get off God's perfect plan of their race. And they're in this jungle of a race. And they wonder why it's falling apart. Or they decide to stop and smell the roses of life. The closer we get to the end of the finish line, I just want to enjoy this. Just this this world that I finally reached a point of uh, financial, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, stability and life, and I'm going to enjoy everything in this world. When really we're getting closer to the end. I was reading a financial article written by a very famous um, guy that does uh, Christian finances. You know, obviously proclaims he's doing Christian finances there. And so he went through the steps that we're supposed to do. And it wasn't until step seven that you start giving. The first six steps were all about us. And step seven finally was build wealth and give generously. I thought, wow, so the first six steps are all about me. 
putting myself in the financial position I want to be in, and then now that I'm in a spot that I'm comfortable with, I can give out of my comfortability. When really Jesus from the beginning said, no, you're supposed to be thinking of me first. I'm not even talking finances. I'm talking drink offering life. So often in this world, we do everything we can to make ourselves comfortable. And then we say, now, Lord, I'll give you a few drops of the drink offering. When Jesus is saying from the beginning, give me the drink offering first and trust me on this. And believers, I don't know where you're at in your race, but I hope you're running strong. Not in your own might, and your own power, but for the Lord. I hope you're staying focused on the finish line. I hope you're not getting distracted by the things of this world and getting choked out. And I hope you realize eternity. Heaven and hell, eternity. That is all that matters. Every single soul, person we run into is either spending eternity in heaven or hell. So why would I want to do anything else but just focus on that? Run the race like Paul did, like John did, and finish the course that God has given you. That's where that joy and peace will be. Come back now with me to Acts 13, please. So John backs up that Jesus is something special. God has proven that this is what he does. Verse 26, men in Abraham, sons of the father of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to you the word of the salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. Please note now over the next few verses, he's going to use the word fulfilled three times. He starts out by saying, God's plan has always been, I chose Israel, watched out for Israel, protected Israel. John the Baptist backs this up, and now he says prophecy fulfills this. Verse 28, And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now when they had fulfilled, there's our word again, all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. Verse 30 is life-changing, world-changing, eternity-changing. Do you know how many people have claimed to be some type of Savior, Messiah, or God, and they died, and they still stay dead? That kind of shoots down the whole claim of being something special. Jesus, raised from the dead, defeated death, shows that he has power over death. And if he has power over death, that means he has power of life. If he has power of life, he's the only one that can give you eternal life. That's why it's so important. So when you read verse 30, God raised him from the dead. I just envision these men at the synagogue stopping. I envision Paul pausing at verse 30. But God raised him from the dead. Let that sink in for a little bit. Verse 31. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And we declared you glad tidings. That promise which was made to the Father. Glad tidings in the Greek, that means gospel. Reminds me of what they told the uh, shepherds in Luke chapter 2 at the Christmas story. Behold, we bring you good tidings of great joy. Gospel. Gospel just means good news. That's what we got, folks. We got the gospel. We got the good news. Let's tell people about it. Be spirit-filled, spirit-led. Get out there and represent. Verse 33. God has fulfilled this. There's our word again. For us, their children, and that he has raised up Jesus. And so now he says, I'm going to give you the verses that prove this. As it was written in the second Psalm, today you are my son. Excuse me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. First point he says, Jesus was God's son. Verse 34, and that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. Corruption means decay, the body decays. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore, he also says in another Psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. So it was prophesied back in the Psalms. 
that this Messiah, the special person, God's son, would not see corruption, would not see death and decay. And he comes out and says, it can't be David, verse 36, for David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers and saw corruption. That's not talking about David. David's dead. David's decaying. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached you the forgiveness of sins, and by him everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you cannot be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which you would by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. He says, guys, be careful with this information. Because if you choose to reject this information, if you choose to reject this teaching, there's going to be issues and problems. The Lord does the same thing still today. Anytime we present the gospel and someone hears it and rejects it, their heart gets a little harder towards it. And it builds up to a hard heart. And it doesn't even have to be about the gospel. It can be about just God's plan for your life. We as believers can hear this. Mark the verses, underline the verses, memorize the verses. But unless we go out and do something with it, we're just going to get a little harder to knowing what God's will is for our life because we're spending so much time and energy on us. And then what happens, days, months, years happen, and then we wonder, where did the joy go? Where did the fervor go? Where did the excitement of go when, when it was just exciting to go represent the Lord? And now it's like, well, just too busy, too much life. Can you go with me real quick as we get ready to finish up here to Revelation chapter 2, please? For you guys that have been coming on Wednesday nights, we started the book of Revelation. We're getting into chapter 6 this week, the sealed judgments. But we went through the churches a few weeks ago, and there was the church at Ephesus. And I just want to read this here as we get ready to close. We talked a lot this morning about this idea of there's going to be opposition. We talked about running the race, the course that God has set before you. And if you're sitting here this morning saying, okay, I don't know what my course is, Hey, backtrack to last week. Get that, listen to that, pray over that, fast over that. The Lord will reveal the plans that he has for you. He promises us that. The problem, though, is this. We can get so caught up in stuff that we start losing focus of what we're supposed to be doing. Take a look here at the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write these things, says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil. You have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. You have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Stop right there. What does this church look like? This church looks like a bulletin that is full. This church looks like a church that has activities going on, a church that stands for truth. This is a church that's trying to move forward. What's this look like as an individual Christian? I think this looks like an individual probably serves somewhere at church. Maybe they're every third month, they're back in the Sunday school classroom. They help out with the extra things. This person probably goes home, and if you look at the calendar on their kitchen, it's probably every single day has something going on. Good things, not necessarily bad things. Maybe the kids got this going on, there's a work thing, there's a church thing, and there's a lot of activity at this house. In fact, so much activity that when there's a day of nothing going on, everybody has to make a comment saying, can you believe we have nothing going on this evening? When's the last time we had nothing going on in an evening? And then you have an evening and you don't know what to do with yourself because you're so antsy because you're always used to having something going on. This is a 
busy family, a busy church, an active church, doing good things, dare I even say godly things. But then verse 4, Nevertheless, I have this against you that you left your first love. They're so busy being busy in life and serving God, they forgot why they're supposed to be busy. I'm telling you as a pastor, what I see, I see this all the time in believers. Like if you go up to them and try to say to them, hey, have you ever thought about, oh, that's a great idea, but I'm too busy with discipleship, this and that, all good stuff. And we can be so busy doing things that we forget why we're doing it. We're so busy running the race, we forget why we're running the race. Verse 5, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Do the first works. What's that look like? I don't know what it looks like for you. I can only tell you what it looks like for me. I remember when I got saved, fall of 93. So it was in October. And got saved. And I'm not going to tell you that it was this magical whatever happened. Um, Jim taught on hell. We were in the White House by the uh, bank. And he taught on hell. And he talked about the realities of hell. And I said, I don't want to go to hell. So I'll take the first train out of hell. What is that? That's Jesus? Sounds good. Sign me up. Book of Jude says some are saved by fear. I was one of those that was saved by fear. Once I got saved, I started realizing the full grace, mercy, and love of God. But what really got my attention was, I don't want to go to hell. So he did the altar call, raise your hand if you want this. I raised my hand, and then he called me that evening. Because he wanted to talk to me about what it meant to be a Christian. So he called me that evening. And I remember at the time, we are living at home. I have two older sisters. My oldest sister really wanted to talk to her boyfriend on the phone. And you remember... Back 25 years ago, you had the one phone, the corded phone. And, and so she was annoyingly standing beside me. You know, I need to call my boyfriend, whatever. And I remember covering up the phone like this. Jim's talking, and I'm saying, he won't stop. I don't know. <laughs> and so, God, and I, and I wish Jim was here. And, and he was, I mean, you know, like, hey, James, you're a new creation in the Lord. And all this stuff. And, you know, getting great stuff. I was like, I just don't want to go to hell, Jim. I mean, that's, I mean, I didn't call him Jim, you know, I just don't want to go to hell. So I got off the phone, and then, this time, weeks and months, I kept going and kept like, oh, wait a second, wow, I get this. And then it really was at the beginning of the year, a few months later, it's like, wow, I really started to understand a relationship with Christ. So when I see that right there, remember where you have fallen and do the first works. My first works, and in a good biblical sense to me, started happening in January then of 94. I started really understanding what it meant to be in the Word and having a time of devotions. Not legalistically. Not legalistically. I've gone through seasons of legalistic devotions. I know the difference. And, and I it was just wanted to be taking notes. I remember, you're having a service at church. I need to be there. Not because I feel like I have to, but that's an opportunity to learn. And, and I remember saying, I am so crazy about what the Lord has done that when I'm talking to someone, it's like, hey, bring up God, bring up God, bring up God. And, and there's a learning process. You sometimes stumble, you sometimes fall, you, you sometimes struggle. I get that. But that remember the first works, I, I know exactly what that is. Of that, that passion, that excitement for the things of the Lord. And so what Jesus is saying is, hey, can you go back to that? Can you go back to that passion and that excitement to see what it was like to really just follow Christ with, with everything you have and what an amazing thing it was? And 
if you're sitting here this morning and you're saved, you know you're saved, you know you're not going anywhere, you love the Lord, the Lord loves you, then amen. I'm just asking when it comes to running your race, I'm just asking when it comes to running the course that got set for you, is that passion, fervor, and excitement still there? Or is the things of the world started to get in and, and choke you up a little bit? Um, there's a great passage, and I'm looking for it here real quick, and I believe it's in the Jeremiah, where Jeremiah says, the Lord says this, he goes, I remember when you first loved me and how you came to me in the wilderness. And the Lord is saying, I remember that early time when you first knew me and that early time you first found out about me. And basically the Lord says, what happened? And I just want to encourage you this morning, if that's where you're at right now, what happened? Let's get back on course. Let's get back on track. Let's get back to where God has called us to be. And just that blessing that comes from running the race and realizing it's not about the world. It's about the finish line. It's about souls. And I want to grab as many people as I can and say, run the race with me. Because what a blessing it is. Hey, worship team, if you can come forward here. Let's pray this into our lives. Lord, as we're just coming to you, if there's someone here this morning that is not on the race, I pray you're speaking truth to them right now, revealing to them where they need to be, where you've called them to be, to know you personally. Lord, if there's someone here that knows you and they're looking for the right track to be on, reveal to them their plan for their life. And Lord, for the rest of us, that we may just run the race that's set before us, finish the course. Thank you for what you're doing, what you've done. We love you, we praise you, and thank you for your grace and mercy with us. And Lord, for just uh, Rhea and Jarrett that's going to go back and get baptized, thank you for those souls that want to make that public declaration of you. And Lord, we just want to publicly pray for them, encourage them, uplift them, and help them grow and go deeper in you. We thank you, Lord, for what you're doing, what you've done. In the name of Jesus, amen.